This interview was recorded on August 26, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Roberto Vitillo. Based in London, Roberto has over 15 years of experience in the tech sector and a variety of roles, including software engineer, tech lead, and manager. He currently works for a company you may have heard of called Microsoft, where he works for a, on a number of, where he's worked on a number of projects, including the launch of SaaS products. And he's responsible for one of the largest data pipelines in the world, which processes second-by-second events from billions of devices all around the world. You can follow him on Twitter at ravitillo and check out his website at robertovitillo.com. Roberto was the author of the LeanPub book, The System Design Manual, Learn How to Design, Build, and Operate Large-Scale Distributed Systems. In the book, Roberto will show you how to design, build, and maintain large distributed systems by discussing not only some of the details, but also basing his observations on a firm grasp of universal core principles for managing big systems. In this interview, we're going to talk about Roberto's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Roberto, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology. Yeah, so um, I'm Italian, but I actually grew up in uh, Switzerland. And uh, my passion for computing started at, I think, around five when I watched uh, Back to the Future. And I became obsessed uh, wanting to building a time travel machine. And I thought having a computer was one of the requisites to do so. Um, and so I've um, hammered my parents until they, they um, gave me one. And uh, yeah, it was kind of like for, uh, love at first sight. Um, so I, I didn't know how to use it, and my parents neither. Um, but all I had was this, uh, this book. Um, and um, you know, it told you how to use uh, MS-DOS. And uh, there were like three pages on QBasic. Um, and that's how I, I started um, getting into programming. Um, initially writing some simple translators from German to Italian. Um, and then uh, I got into games, uh, like um, creating maps for, for, I don't know, Quake and Doom, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so then, um, then the internet came and uh, the real fun started. Like I, I had finally access uh, to all the knowledge in the world. I could learn whatever I wanted. Um, I've, uh, I got deeper into this uh, gaming thing. So I've uh, started, you know, I built like a 3D chess and I started getting into physics um, thanks to the gaming thing. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of like how my, my passion grew. And I, I realized uh, in high school that I loved math and physics even more maybe than computer science. Uh, but in the end, I, I chose to, to get a computer science degree because uh, that, that was the one who gave me more opportunities. Um, yeah, so so then um, let's see. Yeah, I, just, just, just before we go on, I've got a couple of questions. I, I, I checked out your LinkedIn profile, so I think I know what maybe some of the next steps are in your career. But it, it's so interesting to talk to people. I mean, I, most of the people that we interview on the podcast are people who are in software and technology and, and things like that. And um, there's a big difference between people who um, started out before the internet and people who started out after the internet. Um, and uh, you know, those who started out before oft, often reference books or um, like paper books that like you went to the bookstore and you bought a book yes. uh, to learn how to do things. But the, I mean, the next level of old timer uh, was magazines. Um, uh, or you know, those, yeah, 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 and uh, and I mean, and the real old timers, like uh, you know, the Jerry Weinbergs. You know, I like to say, like he was the first computer he ever met. Like his first job was to be a computer, 
Um, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, but so the the question I always like to ask people because of this vast range of experience and like you know and like it's it's funny like you you can be you can be old when you're not that old in in, in computing. Um, uh, if you were starting out now with the intention of having a, the kind of career you ended up having, would you do a formal computer science degree or not? So I, I don't think it's strictly necessary um, these days because of the wealth of knowledge available. Now, what you need though is someone to guide you. So the knowledge is all there, but you also need someone that can tell you, okay, here are the 10 things you need to learn. And this is, um, and these are the, the, the pointers to it. So I think when that's missing, you, you might still sort of learn the wrong things or, or learn, the, learn it in the wrong ways. And that kind of tends, uh, tends to stay with you. So you still need that guide, but if you have that guide, do you need a formal degree? Maybe not. Also like computer science can be very theoretical. In Italy is especially so. Um, you, you do very little practice because a lot of math, um, proving theorems and whatnot. And uh, I, I enjoy that. Now, do I get to prove theorems every day? No, I, I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that there is that as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think there's a way, yeah. You, you can you can have a good you know good career without without formal degrees and and i know i mean we'll talk a little bit about uh, you know sort of the systems design part of interviews and stuff like that but if you're if you're um and a lot of the people listening to this podcast are often people who are trying to build their careers right whatever sort of stage they're at if you're applying to work for a big company like microsoft does having a computer science degree make a big difference I mean, or does it depend on the circumstance is is there any general advice that that one can give even well, i do know like um usually the candidates we get like as engineers um we, we get candidates that already sort of went through the recruiters it's, yeah the, the recruiters kind of like a firewall now they they have certain criteria. our microsoft in general i don't think we look for ivy league schools and that kind of thing like usually uh, the recruiters definitely look for keywords. So they, I think that's a general pattern in the industry. They do, they basically do pattern matching. Um, that said, like I've literally, when I look at resumes, I don't even look at what schools the candidate went to. Like, I, I don't care what school they went to. Um, if, if, you know, if they have some work experience, that's what I, that's, if they have work experience, I look at the work experience. Of course, if they don't have any work experience, then, you know, you need to look at something. So school might help, but if the school is not there, what if you know that per person has maybe I don't know contributed to open source projects? Um, yeah, did, did he do anything uh, of interest? Um, I definitely will look at that as well. But yeah, I don't even actually remember last time I looked at schools. Actually, that's really that's actually. that's really good to hear. Um, <laughs> I should say um, uh, it is it is a really interesting observation though that um, uh, you know for people who haven't applied for a job before, someone has to have something to look at. They don't know who you are. And all they're going to know is what you've done. And even if what you've done isn't even directly kind of relevant to the field, if you've done something, um, it gives people something to look at and something to maybe pique, pique their interest. Um, so if you've, that, that's, this is one of the reasons that sort of famously or infamously sort of extracurricular activities can be very important when you're an undergraduate and things like that, if you're going to be applying for jobs without job experience. But yeah, no, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting to hear. Um, I get lots of different, um, uh, answers to that question about, you know, would you do things the same way now as you did back then uh, when things were so different? Um, and so, so you grew up in Switzerland um, uh, and yeah, I believe you studied for computer science in Italy. 
Uh, yeah, and, that's right. And then you went and you, I mean, maybe I'm skipping something in the middle, but you ended up doing a master's in computer science as well. Yeah, that's right. So when um, in Italy, we have an internship at the end of the, the bachelor and, and uh, I got, um, yeah, you usually you know, work in a company, like you know, internships usually work. Um, so I, I went uh, and worked on the, at, at the Italian Institute for Nuclear Physics. Um, and, and that's where kind of like my passion for physics uh, came in. Like I, I still like physics. Um, I wanted to be involved in something that, that uh, had um, and something to do with it. And so, so yeah, um, I had this, uh, this internship was sort of how my career started. Um, I worked at um, monitoring software for, for the Atlas experiment. So it's, it's one of this, uh, the big four experiments of the Large Hadron Collider. And the, the software I was working on was um, fetching health data from, from the hardware and checking that everything was fine. So it was you know, charting health of various electronics parts. And it was displaying that in, a, in the control room of uh, this experiment. And uh, there were like PhD um, students that uh, were forced to do shifts tonight and uh, were looking at those dashboards. Um, so I, I, I joined um, the project when uh, the Large Adam Collider was, um, was sort of uh, turned on. And so a lot of the software was tested with cosmic rays. So it's kind of like particles that come from, the, uh, from outer space. And then uh, when they turned on the machine, the you know you, you, we had the particles come from there, you know that, that were actually getting smashed in the machine, and and those were happening at, uh, with a way uh, bigger frequency. So a lot of the software was doing way more than it used to do before, and there was a lot of crashes and things not going well. And uh, so it was a so fun once fixing those. Things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I saw that I saw that on your on your LinkedIn bio. So you worked on the Atlas experiment at the Large Hadron Collider, and I didn't I didn't know you were actually there when when it was turned on. And for those yeah, I, for those for those who don't know this know about it, the Large Hadron Collider is like a giant physics giant physics experiment um, that was meant to sort of probe the you know fundamental um, kind of uh, uh, qualities of matter uh, and and I mean everything else, right? And um, uh, and when you're talking about the, the health of the systems, this is like, I mean, I'm just saying this as like a sort of pop science fan, right? I listen to Sean Carroll's Mindscape podcast and that kind of thing. That's about my level of understanding. But, um, uh, you know, when you talk about the health of the systems, this is fundamentally important, right? Because the things that are being probed are so sensitive that uh, if, a, if a cosmic ray comes in and flips a bit somewhere, it'll change the recorded result of the experiment. I'm just guessing this is an, a, a hopefully a somewhat correct explanation of yeah, what, you were, the, what you were there for. Right, yeah. yeah, and so you need to make like so you need to make sure it works. And I, I actually had a an acquaintance who was a theoretical physicist who worked on on the LHC project for a while, and he he once said to me something that I, I just really struck me that like you know everybody thinks about the science, and of course that's important, but getting thousands of scientists. And, and programmers and stuff like that, working at a very high level to cooperate coherently and effectively from all around the world on such a giant project. He goes, that's the real achievement. And so what was it like for you? I mean, yeah, so I, I know you were at the Berkeley lab, so you were in the US for a while, I imagine? Yeah, that, that came later, yeah. Oh, that yeah, came later, okay. And okay. then uh, continued to work um, on, on the Atlas experiments, but just- But, 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 but so you, you went like, you know, halfway around the world to work on the same project. Exactly. I was still going to Geneva, getting flights, which, you know, just the flights were a bit longer. Um, <laughs> I, I got very lucky, like, um, 
that you know sort of there was an opening at the time I was working on those sort of things and uh, yeah so I could continue in Berkeley what I was doing in in, uh, in Italy um, and so yeah I worked on I it stopped working monitoring then I went on working on uh, analysis uh, framework I think of it like the pandas of of CERN that sort of tooling right. um, or, or 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 the spark of CERN uh, if you will. Um, they, they had their own ecosystem of tools and whatnot. Um, yeah, so so what was it like? Um, for me as a computer scientist, it was extremely exciting because there were people of so very different disciplines all, from all over the world. And I, I really liked that. Like um, the fact that I was talking to my, my mathematician in the morning and then at lunch with the statisticians and then in the evening with the particle physicists. Um, and, um, and the thing that always uh, struck me is that physicists have such a big, um, uh, such, such a big breadth of knowledge. Um, they, they know a little bit of everything. They really understand things really well. They, they, you know, they, they are well versed enough in math and, and, and programming and whatnot. Um, so it was always, I always had very enlightening conversations uh, with, uh, with very interesting folks there. Um, so I love that, that part, yeah. I, I kind of miss like working with, um, with that variety of, of, of different people, um, yeah. And how do you, just to, to go into a little bit of detail, how do you check the health of a system like the large, like the, well, like the Atlas experiment at the Large Hadron Collider? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, so the health is, uh, it depends on the hardware you're checking. And uh, what it means is like uh, the hardware emits um, like uh, telemetry. It says, you know, this is um, all the things I'm doing right now. And um, the developers of that hardware uh, knows what are the good ranges. It's kind of like a car, you know, it's, it's basically a machine and uh, the machine has certain ranges of, uh, in which it can operate well. And when it gets out of it, then uh, you know some some alarm bleeps, and someone needs to look at it. If uh, eventually that that piece of hardware needs to be replaced or not, or, or what's or, or what is going on. So yeah, it's a lot of um, yeah, like uh, thresholding alerts and uh, making sure that whoever was looking at, at those uh, at those dashboards was looking at the most impactful piece of information, because you know they, they have, there were so many different pieces of hardware. So you will be overwhelmed if you're just looking at everything. So we had to find ways to prioritize um, what the what the people in the control room were looking at, so that they were catching the the most important bits that was uh, that were acting up. And did you have like sensors that were like looking for cosmic ray bursts or something like that? Again, I'm speaking from the sort of like podcast listener kind of level of understanding. But did like were there? So you were checking the systems, but you're also checking the things that were affecting. The systems at the same time. Yeah, like uh, yeah, we we did that. Uh, we did have satellite dishes and whatnot. Um, but actually, when, when the machine uh, was um, uh, was turned on, um, you know, we were that the whole part was it was kind of shielded. It was all underground, and um, so the, the oh, it was shielded. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's just that's just fascinating. And so you you move. I mean, we could talk about that for a long time. But you uh, you moved on from there to Mozilla, another company people have probably heard of. Uh, and so you went, so you had been in San Francisco for a while and then you moved yeah. to London um, and worked for Mozilla. What was, what was it? Well, what was it like? I should say long time listeners of the podcast know I, I at one point moved to London. Actually, I've had a few points in my life. I moved to London, but um, uh, what was it like working for uh, Mozilla? Yeah, it's, uh, that was very unexpected. So I've, um, um, I, I, you know, I, I, my love for 3D games was still there. So I, I was hacking some, some stupid demo or something together and uh, I found a bug in the, the 
and the WebGL compiler. So I sent a um, pull request to fix that and the recruiter got in touch with me. So it was completely random. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I didn't even know there was a company behind Mozilla. I thought it was sort of all, it was just completely open source at the time. And then I realized, oh, there's actually a corporation behind it. There are a thousand more people working um, on it. And um, and yeah, so I've, um, yeah, Mozilla is a, is a very interesting company. So when I, when I joined initially, I, I realized immediately how deeply um, management there cared about end users. Like Mozilla doesn't store any private information about users. I mean, they, they really do the right thing. Um, and it also saddened me a bit, like knowing it's competing against those big giants. And, um, you know, they, they just have so much money that they control at, the, uh, at their products that how, how can a small company like Mozilla succeed, right? Um, but being there, I always, uh, I mean, I still use now Firefox um, because I know the people behind it, they, they really care about, about me. Like they will never try to get my data um, or, you know, make money out of it. I, I trust them that they, they will do the right thing. Um, so that, that's, that really struck me um, um, when, when I joined and uh, it's one of the reasons I, I, I love working there. Uh, well, I mean, on that note, I guess, um, uh, speaking of sort of sad things, um, Mozilla has been in the news lately and it's had some, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people might've thought of it as kind of a big company, but it is, as you say, in the context, a small company, it's had a bit of a setback. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, they, I think they, um, let go of 25% of the workforce. Um, I, I knew, or I know some, some of those people. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know the details behind it. I mean, I, I've read, I, you know, I've, I've read the, the public posts and um, um, yeah, I mean, I know the user base is going down. Um, on, on the other hand, I also know they renewed um, their contract with Google, uh, which is actually their main, their main competitor, which is always, it's a bit weird, right? The, their main yeah. competitor is also their main source of income. Yeah. So I think they, they, they need to try to find new ways of monetizing, uh, to keep them, uh, the boat afloat. And they're, I, I think they're downsizing, um, some, some, some parts of, uh, of Firefox so that they can go and explore different avenues. I know they're, they launched a VPN. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know what else they have in store, but, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. That's just just so fascinating, and it is interesting to hear about, um, you know, how the that a little bit about the story of how Mozilla doesn't keep your data, but their biggest competitor is also their biggest or was their biggest financial supporter, Google. Yeah, uh, it's a really fascinating story, and for anyone interested in, in tech, I mean, I rec if you don't know it, I recommend looking into it. Um, and so uh, before we go on to talk about your your work at Microsoft and on big systems and um, uh, your, your book, of course, um, I wanted to talk to a little bit more about um, uh, where you are right now. Um, so we were talking a little bit before this. Uh, Roberto actually lives in the neighborhood I first lived in when I moved to London, uh, Balham, uh, but they're very different. Was that was that the first neighborhood you moved to when you moved to London? No, it was not. It was not. I was uh, West Kensington before. Okay. Uh, and then came came here. Um, okay. Okay. It's, uh, I don't know how it was when you came here, but now it's uh, <laughs> this is like the baby area. Like if you have a baby, you come here because all the baby shops are here, and you see a lot of people with strollers and, and business baby <laughs> friends. It was not like that when I moved to Balham in 1999. I mean, there was it was literally like it was not like that. It was it was 
it was seen as it it wasn't like a romantically scary area but it was seen as a bit of a scary area and um uh, it had a, it had a little bit of rough and tumble about it but you could even even a sort of dumb prairie guy like me could tell that it was kind of at the beginning of a transition to something different and i remember i remember going back there about six years ago and being just shocked to see a coffee shop you know there was nothing like that but it's sort of fun to hear that now it's kind of like this pleasant sort of stroller stroller and babies place yeah. uh but it was not like that but um what was that what was that like for you when you first moved to london did you did you enjoy the the life there yeah it's um i didn't like the, the weather um <laughs> That, that was the first thing, yeah, going, coming from San Francisco, you know, and yeah. every day you open the window, it's blue, blue sky, and here's like gray sky. Um, it's not even rain, because it doesn't rain that much. It's just this gray sky, um, perpetual gray sky, which uh, it's, um, yeah, it takes a bit to get used to. Um, and uh, yeah, that was probably the biggest difference. Um, the other thing I will say is that London doesn't feel like a big city really because everything you know that you they can't build really skyscrapers and whatnot so you always feel like you're in a neighborhood um so i, I like that as well and the public transport is just amazing like i don't need a car or anything here um it's uh you wait one minute there's the next underground train coming and uh, you know san francisco with the bar it's like yeah 20 minutes wait um are you um, telling me the northern line is reliable now oh yeah it is oh it wasn't like that <laughs> no no. <laughs> during the summer, I mean, it, it is livestock transportation. I mean, during the summer, it's like you squeeze in and you can barely breathe. But it is reliable uh, if, if you can get in. That's that's great to hear. Um, yeah, no, you're you're saying things that are making me very nostalgic. But yeah, that's 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 fantastic. And um, uh, so I wanted to ask you something specific that comes up. Um, uh, at, Starting a few months ago, I, I, I timestamped the interviews with a scary little, this interview was recorded on such and such a date at the beginning uh, because things are changing so much during the pandemic and it sort of does matter, like the weeks can matter. Um, and yeah. so what, what, and so one thing I've been doing with guests is asking, uh, what has, how has the pandemic affected you and particularly the people around you in the place where you live? Yeah, so um, I think we started sheltering place here around the end of March. Uh, maybe maybe before that, I guess for me um, the the main the main thing was um, I have a small child, so he's uh, one year old. Um, it was one year old at the time, so the, that was it was yeah very hard working from home uh, with a small child that uh, obviously doesn't understand why you cannot be with him, although he's not right, you're right next to him. Um, so that was uh, very hard, but um, fortunately, you know, the, the employer uh, I work for um, understands that and like, you know, so, so yeah, that, and uh, I think um, that went on for about a couple of months and then um, the, the schools and nurseries started reopening. Um, so I think they reopened, I think end of June, mid-June or so. Um, so that, that, that was a huge help. So we weren't really sure if we should send uh, send our son there. Uh, it's like, okay, what do we do here? Should we do it? Should we not? Um, but the thing is, we couldn't just function as human beings without without help. Um, so, so yeah. So we decided to send him back to nursery, and um, so that's sort of when we, you know, got to, got time to breathe again and um, start having some resemblance of uh, of life. <laughs> um, and were were you working from home when shelter in place started? Or were you already yeah. working from home? 
yeah, both uh, me and my wife were, were working uh, from home. Um, yeah, we were we were just doing turns. Like I, don't know, I was working two hours, and then uh, she was uh, with our kid, and then and vice versa. Um, yeah, obviously I was working less, um, uh, but yeah, we found we found kind of a way to manage. Um, yeah. And uh, had you had you ever worked from an office in London, or had you always worked from home? No, I've uh, so Microsoft has offices. Uh, so I used to go to the office. I w- maybe I was working one day uh, from home in okay. general, but usually I was more more in the office than from home. And Mozilla as well. Mozilla used to have an office as well here. So um, although I wasn't going every day, I, you know, I, w- I was still happy to go there and then you know talk to my colleagues, see them in person. Um, so I, I'm used to work from home, but I also know it, it's it, it can easily spiral out where you sort of don't have any contact anymore with people. So I, I, I like going to the office and, and see people um, and I, I miss that as well. Uh, like uh, I'm a bit fed up of all the uh, conversation over, over, over cameras and whatnot. Like I really feel like, okay, I, and although I'm an introvert, I would like to see them in person. Uh, so yeah, uh, I don't know, how, how is it for you? Like, um, uh, it's interesting um, uh, that you say that. Um, I, you know, we, LeanPub is a distributed team. Everybody works from home. Um, I've always, I mean, I worked, I, I uh, worked in offices in London when I worked there, and um, I always hated commuting. Um, maybe it was because I was on the Northern Line, <laughs> but uh, I really, I really hate it. It seemed very arbitrary to me. Um, uh, specifically, actually, I have a, a funny story. So, I come from the only place. I think it was the only place in North America that didn't have daylight savings time. So I just didn't, I didn't know about it really. And I remember one day I got up and I went to the, the Ballum tube stop and it was empty. And I was like, what, as opposed to the sardine, <laughs> sardine can you were describing before. And I was like, what's going on? And I was an hour late. Um, and I got to work and I remember my, my boss, who was a really nice guy, but he kind of like, you know, tap, tap, tap on his watch. What's like, the only time in two years I'd ever been, or well, it must've only been six months, but like the only time I'd ever been late. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I made a mistake. What's the, there's nothing time sensitive. It just made no sense to me. So I've always found the, 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 the office world to be a little bit arbitrary. But I, w- I will say, um, just yesterday, a friend of mine came to town and we actually got to hang out in person. And that was the first time I'd hung out in person with anyone other than, you know, my colleague Peter from LeanPub for like four months. And oh, yeah, oh. and yeah. Being being in person with people makes a big difference. I'm 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 not I'm never going to be a convert to like everyday nine to five office life, but I'm definitely a convert to like in person <laughs> interactions are really important. It it makes a difference. Like a little tear came to my eye when I saw him. You know, like it's it it really matters. And I think a lot of us are, you know, even even us introvert, even us work from home introverts are kind of realizing you know, what, what, what we're missing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so moving on. So you, um, you worked for Mozilla for a while, but then you worked to move to, uh, you switched to working for Microsoft. Um, and what are you, so yeah, I know you're working on like a huge, huge system for them. So could you explain a little bit about what you're doing for, for Microsoft now? Yeah. So I've, um, I work on an, an internal, um, telemetry service, uh, was adopted as a service platform. So the idea is that you know if you're office or Skype, you come to us and uh, we we give you some tools to, that you can use to instrument your applications, and then those applications send back data to us. And the kind of data they send is uh, you know usage data such as 
how long does it take to, for the app to start, um, how many garbage collection cycles there are. So it's, uh, it's mostly performance and, and health measurements. And uh, our platform takes all, all the data coming in from, from over a billion devices in the world all over the, the place and uh, we, it aggregates it and uh, makes it easy to consume. Uh, so that's kind of like what the platform does in a nutshell. Um, so I, I've, uh, yeah, started my journey in Microsoft working on the, on an ingestion front end. So it was quite a, in a way, a career change for me because I always worked on an analytics tool. Um, and, and when I joined Microsoft inside, I switched on the ingestion side of things. So it's, it's really like the, the first sort of service you hit when your phone sends some packet of data to Microsoft. So I worked on that. I, there were a lot of new interesting problems to solve. And then later I sort of, sort of start taking over um, the, the, the pipeline, the entire pipeline of the of this uh, internal SaaS product. And uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great learning experience, a lot of fun. And uh, the main reason actually why I joined Microsoft was, you know, was I wanted to have get experience on these large systems. Um, there's only a few places where you can really work on systems that ingest a trillion events per uh, events uh, per day, and Microsoft is one of those. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. We'll we'll start talking about your book finally in a, in, a, in a moment. But um, uh, I like from what I gather, a lot of your work is about like anticipating what can go wrong. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, and 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 all kind. It can be anything. Like it's not like you're not you're not. It really can be anything. It can be like someone unplugs something accidentally, or or there's a cosmic yeah. ray flips a bit, uh, or, or or anything anything that can go wrong. And what's the? Um, I guess I'll ask you two questions. What's the? What's the real world problem you've encountered that most scared you? Uh, cascading failures. Um, so this. Uh, so what what is a cascading failure? Is when you get so much load, and, and this happened actually. We we got close to it during COVID during recovery emergency. Um, so let's say your system is, is able to handle a certain amount of load. And load we, load, we mean like just data packets coming yeah. in, like bits, be being, bits being thrown at you. Yes, bits being thrown at you. Uh, it could be number of requests, number of users. Yeah, there are different dimensions you can match the load in. But usually, you know, you, you plan ahead, you think, okay, you know, the system can handle X amount of load and then you got some buffer in it. Um, and but the problem is, uh, if you get way more than what you planned for, then the system starts to crash. It's like you know you, you've seen it on your computer; uh, everything starts to slow down. This happens also in distributed systems. Like it's just like it happens at a wider, at a, at a bigger scale. More machines are crashing at the same time. So what happens then is that usually those machines are behind load balancers, um, and um, those load balancers detect that oh, this machine is crashing. Let me remove it from the pool. Now you have one less machine to handle the same load. And then another, so the, the point is like you keep removing machines behind this load balancer while the load is still there. And so the machines that remain there need to handle way more than they used to do before, right? So this creates a cascading, so called cascading failure, um, which is very hard to recover from because, um, yeah, it's like, and, um, it kind of creates like uh, this uh, this beam of doom where yeah, um, the machines are still up or are beamed to death, and then the one that were that have been removed from from this pool come back online. But by the time they they come back online, they get beamed to to death again. So it, it's like this weird ping pong behavior where everything just goes to hell and uh, 
And, and just to give people an image of that. So, if, I mean, this is the image that I was having was like, there's a data center we're talking about. Like there's actually stacks of literal machines and some of them are being, there, there's a stream of information coming in. And if too much is being directed at one machine, the load balancer removes that machine from receiving the information for a period of time. That's right, yeah. Right, okay. And, and the way you can see it, yeah, there are load balancers at different levels. So in the data center, so on the rack, you might have a load balancer. In the data center, you might have another load balancer. And then- Oh, so it's a piece of hardware. Yeah, you can do it in hardware, the software that are, usually these days is done in software. Okay. Um, yeah, and, um, and that's, it basically means those are older machines that take your data before you get to see it in the first place. But their, their, their software is very lean. Um, so they, the only thing they do is really just forward it to you and then do some, some bunch of health checks. Um, it can get complex there, but it depends what you do with it. But the point is like, it's a very lean piece of software that just um, acts as a proxy uh, to your service. And you can have different levels of load balancers. So, um, so to, to give an example, like if one region has a problem, the whole load for that whole region might be redirected somewhere else. I don't know, from, from North Europe to South Europe, um, and so on. So you, you can you can have these cascading failures can affect your um, system at a global scale. Um, and you said that this this real world example that you you experienced was sort of the COVID surge. So you're talking about like all of a sudden everybody's yes. So uh, you, you, you know we, using using these services for things they used to do occasionally all day long. Exactly. Yeah, it was like um, it, it was you know like a, initially a slow increase. Uh, but significant and then all of a sudden we went into double digit percentage increase every day and uh, you know and at that point like you know in one from one mile to the other you might get around 30 percent more traffic and and yeah that, that was quite a lot of fun um so to avoid those cascading failures you know the, it was really all hands on deck uh, people scanning up services and there were not enough machines available and, um yeah so everyone in the in, in azure in the azure world really worked really hard um because th those things are used um uh, in hospitals and whatnot, so you know, yeah. So we 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 did our best to to make sure they kept being available and, and useful for the people that needed them. And and actually, I think Microsoft in general, I think most companies did a quite good job. Like and uh, and uh, but most people don't think about who is behind um, the services and. Um, yeah, it's probably a lot of engineers with sleepless nights. It's interesting you say that because that, that will, uh, after I ask you my last uh, pre-book question, that's a nice segue to the, to the book where, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, even a lot of software engineers actually just don't think about the kind of stuff that we're, that we're talking about, the kind of real kind of machinery uh, that, that makes things go. Um, but so the, the last question before we talk about your book is, so I asked you, what's the scariest real world thing that you've experienced? Uh, what's the scariest thing that you've, worried about that's never had that hasn't happened but that like if it did happen that would be a calamity yes uh, the scariest thing will be um probably leaking user data uh, that's probably the worst thing you can do like let's say you yeah like somehow data that um has been entrusted to a company gets out gets out in the open that's uh the, the biggest you know one thing is like the service is unavailable it's bad but you know, you, you can survive that, but uh, leaking user data means you kind of breach the trust. Like uh, imagine your, I don't know, your documents being done somewhere in the open. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's the thing like um, that worries me all the time. Like when I, um, 
review code or when I write a code, I always think, okay, can this create a privacy or security incident in, in any way? Um, that's my biggest worry, yeah, always. Thanks very much for sharing that. I, 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 was, I was guessing you were going to say solar flare, uh, but uh, <laughs> as, you say, as you say, I mean, as long as, it, you know, as long as the hospitals can keep running and things like that, you know, uh, uh, yeah, leaking user data, that's, that would be the worst because once it's out there, it's, it's out there. Uh, yeah, exactly. it, it's yeah. gone and the information about you and your past doesn't doesn't change uh, yeah. and once someone has it they have it so yeah that's a really really scary thing um, so moving on to your book um, the system design manual learn how to design build and operate large-scale distributed systems uh, I want to ask you what was your inspiration for writing this book yeah so actually um, inspiration came from 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 the side to create a product um so i always have some sort of side thing i do and um um yeah so one i think at the end of last year i decided to, to create some sort of product i didn't know what it was it was just something i wanted to do on the side and see you know learn how to do it well and uh start thinking okay what can i do and what can i not do and um, the thing is you know yeah i have a full-time job i have a kid so it, it could it, whatever it was it it would have been something that I had some sort of unfair advantage uh, so that I could reduce the number of hours um, I, I was working on that. And so a book or a course came, came, came uh, natural to me. So initially, actually, I wanted to do a class. And then I realized that recording is way harder than I originally expected to be. And you cannot go back and change words like in a book. So I've, um, I've pivoted to a book then. Um, so I started with the class and I went to a book. And, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's how I got the idea. And, um, and then I started thinking, okay, what can I teach that provides the most value for a reader? Um, and from all the things I, I, I thought I could teach, um, I, I thought, okay, maybe I could write something about distributed systems because what's out there, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not great. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot on the theoretical side, a lot on the practical side, like things like Kubernetes and, and tools, but not much in the middle. And when I when I wanted when I learned about those uh, I wanted to learn about distributed systems I recall I don't know down, you know downloading books and reading about theoretical things that I couldn't understand how they fit in in practice and I, I was reading as well about you know uh, things like Kubernetes that existed before Kubernetes and uh, and that was one thing I said okay I have this tool I know how to use it but how do you actually design the system how do you you know Get a blank canvas and design something from scratch. Um, what, what is the process here? What do I need to know? Um, and so yeah, that's uh, that's where the book come in, came in. I said, okay, let me let me try to sort of um, condense that information in in a book. And um, yeah, the, the MVP for that was um, was basically just a table of contents. So I shared that with different people. I started getting a feeling that hey, you know, does it make sense uh, talking about this specific topic or not? Um, I showed it to some colleagues, um, and yeah, I went from there. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. We can talk a little bit in the last part of the interview about the nuts and bolts of, you know, how, um, you know, trying to create a video class uh, is very different from writing a book and has its own advantages and challenges as well. But it's, it, it's, it's just fascinating for us to, I mean, I've heard this, this story from people before where they're like, I wrote, you know, 100 pages of, of speech that I read out and recorded you know, 10 hours of, of videos and then something changed <laughs> and I can't go back. You can't go back and change yes. like a 10 second blip without really like 
ruining the whole experience. Whereas with a book, you can actually just go and change it. Um, so it's like, but then again, with a book, like as, as amazing as books are, uh, it's a lot different than a video. Um, uh, and I, I interviewed someone, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Nigel Poulton. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he lives in the, in the UK and he, he actually shifted his whole career towards doing courses and creating products. Um, and, uh, you know, he talks about how, you know, you, you have to, you have to get it exactly right when you're doing video courses, if you want them to be, to be good. Um, yeah. and, and so like, you know, you have to re-record entire segments and like, and, but then like the entire course, like if all of a sudden something's out of kilter, it, it, it kind of, um, ruins the experience, but, um, especially like technical topics, like you, you maybe want to redefine a term that you define at the beginning and, uh, that really bugs me. It's like, oh, but this term, I need to redefine it. You know, like it, I have a way better way to express what I want to say and, yeah. And the other thing is, if you're not a native English speaker, it's very hard as well. Um, I mean, I generally suck at languages, um, so so there, there's that. Like, writing is one thing, uh, talking is a, uh, Well, I, th I think you're probably being modest growing up Italian in Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> I, I, suspect, I suspect you probably speak many languages better than most of us speak our own. <laughs> yeah, but, I, but, I know, but I know what you mean, and it's a very important point that, like, if you get something wrong in a text, Yep. you kind of, you know, select, delete, and rewrite. Exactly. Uh, and if you get something wrong in a video, it's like, you have to go back to the space you were in, and you have to put on the same shirt, and then you have to have the same ambient sound. And it's actually kind of impossible. You have to reshoot kind of the, the whole segment, uh, which is one of the things that makes it so difficult. And I know I interviewed someone named Jane Friedman for this uh, podcast once. It's in the publishing world, not the software or technology world. And she did a great courses course on um, how to publish a book. And they make sure that you've got every word written down before you record anything. It's, it all is, has to be spelled out. And that's one of the, one of the reasons that, you know, we actually created a, a courses platform on LeanPub in addition to books was the insight that like, if you've got, if you've got a course, you've actually got a book um, yeah, already. Um, and we're trying to, we're trying to see if that's true. And, and if it, even if it is true, if we can convince people, but, uh, but yeah, so the, the inspiration for your book partly, partly was you wanted to create a product, um, and you wanted to create a product that you, uh, could, could wear something that you had an advantage on, but also something that wasn't really out there. And you talk about on your blog, um, and in the book about the system design interview. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons you wrote your book was to help people who might confront that. And so what this is, is that if you're applying for a job, uh, as a software engineer uh, at a company, uh, if you're at, applying to the kind of company that may have multiple rounds of interviews, uh, one of those rounds of interviews might be the system design interview. And that often people are, un and one of your observations is that people are often unprepared for this. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is the, the system design interview and what, is the mo what are the most important things other than buying your book for people to do to prepare uh, for this? Yep. Yeah, so the system design interview is, um, is where you get to design some piece of software. And, uh, and, and usually this day and age, it's a large scale system. Um, it doesn't have to be, it could be also something smaller. It depends where you're applying for. But um, yeah, um, at least where, where I work uh, on is uh, in, is usually a large scale system. And um, it's, it's typically used for senior candidates. Because you know um, the typical round is like you have you do a bunch of coding exercises and 
algorithmic puzzles, which I'm, I'm not too, too fond of. Um, and um, and then, uh, but then for senior candidates, usually you have several rounds of uh, system design. So the idea, the idea that, or what are you trying to answer there is like, can this person work independently on, on a solution for a problem? Because you, you know, senior is expected to do that. And you know, just asking some to write five lines of code to, to solve some algorithmic puzzle doesn't really really show any of that, uh, any of those skills. Um, so the system design is is yeah, is trying to answer that question. And um, and usually if you have someone with experience and you want to interview, I mean, this is an interview question to someone with experience. Um, and um, yeah, you want the person sort of to take the lead. You're kind of like um, following along. The person usually takes the lead, it asks questions, and um, you're kind of having an interaction with a person just like you will with a coworker. And you have a bunch of conversations, and uh, if, if the person has some experience, then um, you will have sort of, you, you will think about things that are usually missed, like um, what can go wrong. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like um, the, the, yeah, the more senior um, the, the engineers are, the more they think about those edge cases, you know, what can go wrong. Um, and um, how is uh, how can we guarantee privacy and security? And while while if you're more junior, maybe you think it's the only thing that matters is scale. It's like oh, how do we make this thing scale? So actually, how how do we make things scale is some, it's most of the time not the hardest part. Is how do you know how do you make things that don't break? Um, the after a few days you release them, and um, uh, how how do you make things that are maintainable and the uh, resilient is easy to operate and secure so that's actually the, the challenge uh, rather than scalability yeah thanks very much for sharing that it's it's interesting it's been a while since i've been in the sort of getting ready for the interview thing but you do you do encounter the odd i mean you know uh the odd kind of you know you, you did talk earlier about how there are gatekeepers and they have their own ways of doing keyword searches and th things like that but um uh you know sometimes you do encounter i mean in in the investment banking world where I came from, you know, the, the version of the, the question that maybe people think is really cool, like, you know, that I mean, in the olden days, it was how many, how many phone booths are there in Manhattan, you know, oh. and you were supposed to sit there and come up with an answer. And that was, that was what the consultancies asked you, right? They, and and the, the investment banker answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Not make some shit up. Um, and, uh, and, uh, the, uh, the sort of like answers that you're, that you're, that's the kind of questions that you're talking about are like, yeah, like how do you, what, 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 how can this system fail? Like, it doesn't, doesn't matter how clever you are. Like you're going to be in a sit, I'm hiring you to be in a situation where you're going to actually have to solve a problem. And so at the, I'm just, I'm just sort of making a kind of theoretical observation about interviews. You have to be prepared for both the kind of tacky ones because you might in order to get in you're probably going to have to get through some gatekeepers but at the yeah. other side on if you get to the other side there's there's another kind of resourcefulness that you're going to have to have available to you and one of the things you talk about in your book you, you say quote uh the tricky part is understanding failure modes trade-offs and costs which is mm -hmm. what skilled interviewers focus on and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about an example of like what a trade-off would be and i think i think i'd listen to a talk you gave on I saw it on YouTube about, I think there was a trade-off between resilience and consistency. Oh yeah, that was maybe something I mentioned uh, around the cap theorem. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, um, let me give you an example. So, and, and that's one of the main trade-offs you have to make. Um, so 
let's say you have a system that uh, reads configuration settings in and those configuration settings they change continuously you know it might be the quota for you users you know uh, each user has a quota and that that user can only send up to that quota and those quotas can change any time you know based on how they're built and uh, user coming in and whatnot so what happens if the system that holds your configuration is no longer there do you just stop processing any requests um or or do you continue but then if you continue you're no longer correct you're maybe all the code has changed or something has changed and you're letting things through so this is uh yeah this is uh one way to see um what the capturing is saying where you know if you have a network partition so you you have these two systems they're no longer being able to con to talk to one another, your service and the configuration system, then you either choose consistency or availability. So that's one of the trade-offs like you have to make. Um, and there are many, many trade-offs like this um, when, you, when you build a system. Should you use a SQL uh, database? Should you use a NoSQL one? And the thing is, there is no right answer. Um, it's really all about trade-offs. So, and you need to think about uh, your specific use case say, and think um, what makes more sense to you. And, and actually a large part of, of those interviews is trying to explain those trade-offs. It's kind of like seeing, um, trying to understand why does the person I'm talking to, um, why did, why did the, the person make the choice he did or she did? Um, and uh, there is a trade-off there and uh, yeah, you're trying to get to the bottom of it. And that's really interesting. So, so I guess um, when things are going wrong, like when you're having say a potential sort of cascading kind of failure, like who decides what to do? Yeah, so in that case, um, yeah, so usually it's the person on call. So uh, for example, in my team, we, are, we both develop, uh, so we develop the systems, but we're also on call for it. And, and so, yeah, whoever ends up being on call during, during that uh, period of time needs to make those, those decisions. Um, and what you're going to have to do afterwards is is explain <laughs> why yeah, exactly. why why you did what you did, but not in a in a theoretical. I'm trying to get a job context, but like an actual exactly. like why did I turn off these 10 million customers and not those 10 million customers? So that's that's one thing. And then the next thing uh, that then the person does is usually you have a postmortem, and then you find a way to automate this. So yeah, you try to automate all all the sort of failure scenarios you've seen. Um, because um, in order to guarantee availability, the kind of availability that, that people expect these days, you really can only be, your, your system can be unavailable just for a few seconds every day. And so to get there, you really have to automate all the, all the things. Um, and so, so yeah, and, uh, and in, the, in the automation, you need to make those trade-offs. But if the automation is lacking, then whoever is on call will have to make those decisions on the spot. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And on a much smaller scale, that is actually how we approach things at LeanPub as well. And I think it's sort of just best practice for any, any company that's, you know, got, got people that they can get to automate things. It's like if you encounter a problem, uh, you deal with it. And then afterwards, you look at it and say, what can we do to make sure this will never happen again? And that's, that's you know, what you mean by, by automating it. Like, you know, if, if, if the signals start coming in that this kind of bad thing is happening, how can we, how can we, how can we fix it automatically? And this is sort of the secret to why you and I can have a video chat <laughs> that's seamless now, whereas we couldn't have 10 years ago that people adopted these kind of practices and they've, they've really worked out in a lot of ways. Um, uh, so uh, moving on just to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience writing. Um, so you started out 
doing a video and then you just or a video class and then you decided to to maybe before you finish that do a book uh, as if I understand it correctly but you're writing your book you're publishing your book in progress uh, so often I ask people why did you pick LeanPub for your platform if you're publishing in progress that probably answers the question but uh, uh, how did you come about deciding to publish an unfinished book bit by bit yeah so I've um, when I got into this um, you know create your own product thing I started reading about it how different approaches and uh, yeah, the, the one thing I didn't want to do is uh, create something that nobody wanted to read. Um, and so I, I really tried to iterate and um, from one MVP to the other. So the first MVP for me was the table of contents. And then um, actually the very first MVP was the landing page. And then, then the uh, table of contents came. And then later, um, yeah, so some of the chapters, I tried to pick the chapters that seemed more, more relevant. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of like um, how I approach things. And then the reason is I want to make something that's actually useful. I want to hear feedback from, from my readers. I want to understand how I can improve, if it should, you know, maybe explain some things better and, and avoid certain uh, certain topics. Um, and the only way to do that is by releasing your, your book continuously. And, and actually one, one of the things that um, I realized then uh, there is like why, because we, we are so used that, you know, you buy this physical book, which then is no longer updated but why does it have to be that way? Like, why can a book not be evergreen? You know, why can it not be like any other software where you get updates uh, from time to time? And um, yeah, well, why can it not be like that? So I actually, initially I was sort of very frustrated thinking, okay, what should I put in this table of content? And then I felt like it's never gonna be fully complete or we'll never have all the things I want to put there. And then I realized this is just like any other software. You know, I can keep adding things to it. I don't need to stop. Um, so that, yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing that. That's, um, uh, you know, music to music to my ears. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people ask us, you know, is LeanPub only for programming books? And it's like, no, no, it's not. But then, then, then they, then they ask, well, then why are they almost all programming books? And it's because programmers have the attitude that you just expressed better than I think anyone has on this podcast in the past, which is, I want to be able to update it. I want to be able to change it. I want to be able to fix it. I want to be able to improve it. I want to be able to add to it and subtract from it when I, when I need to. And uh, the idea of, you know, it, I mean, it used to be the case that programming was actually kind of like that. You know, when you shipped discs and cellophane wrappers, you know, when that release went out, that release went out. But we don't live in, programmers don't live in that world anymore. They live in a world, for most things, I mean, you know, they, they can update stuff anytime. And and that's one of the reasons that LeanPub has been so attractive to people who are in programming is they're like, ah, there's a typo. I want to fix it. And if that typo is in a code sample, <laughs> the code sample won't run when everybody tries it. Exactly. And, and then you're going to have hundreds or thousands of people who are all like tearing their hair out and angry at themselves until they get mad at you when they realize it's not their own fault. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons that like uh, people with a certain kind of mindset um, have been attracted to, to LeanPub because we make it so easy to update books. Um, and so, but, but you, you talked about how, and this is a very important thing to us that we're, it's actually kind of something where a dimension where we have so much more work to do, but interacting with readers, how do you, how do you do that? Do you, do you put your email address at the beginning of your book? I know you have a newsletter that people can sign up for as well. Yeah. So I've, uh, yeah, exactly. So I've, uh, I collect a bunch of email addresses from potential readers, um, to the landing page. I also get sometimes feedback from, from within LeanPub uh, in the contact, uh, the other um, bar. 
um, it's kind of in the, you know, I get random messages on LinkedIn actually from leaders. Actually, I think most of the messages have been on LinkedIn. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I actually got very good feedback on LinkedIn. I, there's even um, some, some, yeah, some guy that keeps sending me feedback and uh, finding small typos and added in now in the acknowledgements because it's, it's doing such a great job. Um, yeah, they just come over the place. I think, you know, everyone picks whatever he uh, or she feels more comfortable using to combat the authors. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, link, link, sorry, link, but LinkedIn is one of the sort of services that we've actually not paid as much attention to as the others, uh, but it's something that's becoming more and more on our radar, and that we might might think more about sort of, you know, giving people a, an opportunity to, you know, we you can put your Twitter, you can enter your Twitter handle and your Instagram and your Facebook on on your mm -hmm. author profile, but we don't have a LinkedIn option yet, and that sounds like something that we should probably add. Um, uh, yeah, and then so when you mentioned the landing page for your book, you have both a landing page for your book on LinkedIn, but you also have one um, on the web yep. as well at system uh, systemdesignmanual.com, which I recommend everyone check out and sign up for the for the newsletter and things like that. Um, uh, and uh, do you have, I guess, my last question about your process of writing the book? Do you have, a, I mean, you want it to be evergreen, but do you have a schedule like every every month I want a new chapter out or something like that? Yeah, you're precisely right, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's every morning new chapter. I mean, that's, um, I, I've been on holidays for, for two weeks, so that, uh, that definitely helped. Um, I don't know how realistic it is um, with work and everything, but it's good to have a goal. Actually, the, the goal is not just there um, in order to make sure that you, you ship it, but also to cut scope. Like sometimes if you don't have any, any timing constraint, then you just sort of, you know, go on and on on, on tangents and that, that, that and, and in the end you, you will never ship the full product because you know you just spend so much time on something that nobody cares about so the fact that there is a deadline means okay i i know i can talk about this in that length for the you know uh 400 pages but i need to stop because i need to finish this chapter and i have only three weeks left so that that helps a lot and then later once you have all the chapters out once you have an mvp of those chapters you can always go back and add more to it at least you have something to build on top of it. Um, yeah. Thanks very much for sharing all of that. Uh, I should mention, actually, I should have I should have done this before. MVP means minimum viable product. I'm sure most people listening to the to the podcast will know that. But that's a talk from sort of lean startup world, and um, the the idea there is partly that whether it's whether it's a book or a or, or an app or something like that, get out the minimum thing. Uh, and show it to people, even if it's just a table of contents and see if anyone expresses interest and get their feedback is a really good idea for deciding both what to do and what not to do. Um, and so one, you know, one of the inspirations behind LeanPub was actually getting people to stop working on books. Um, <laughs> rather than spending three years writing a book, if your intention is to, is to, is to reach a wide audience and you spend three years in, in isolation and you then release your book and it reaches no one, would have been much better to have released a table of contents after thinking yeah, exactly. about it for 10 minutes and then discovering that you, you're not going to reach a wide audience with that idea. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Roberto, for taking the time out of your day to do this and coming direct from Balum, which just, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of my day. Uh, uh, but yeah, thanks very much for uh, being on the Front Matter podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. All right. Thank you for having me here. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.